Hi, welcome back to the Reluctant Psalm Podcast with Chris. This is uh, episode four. Date is May 7th, 2020. Uh, I'd like to take a moment of your time to dedicate this podcast to my father, Michael Dennis Truitt, who unfortunately uh, passed away November 3rd, 2017. However, I'm choosing to celebrate his birthday anyways, uh, as if he was here as much as I can during quarantine, and uh, have a Coors Light and have some beef later on and just kind of relax and enjoy life. He taught me a lot of lessons about just slowing down sometimes and taking in the beauty that's around you. So on the other note, talking about wine, uh, that's what you're here for, I guess, or alcohol in general. So um, a quick update with what's going on in the state of California. Uh, the 8th, which is tomorrow, Friday the 8th of May, uh, there will be an update coming from Governor Newsom that will decide if we can move into stage two of reopening California. So if we're approved, which it looks like we should be approved, some low-risk workplaces will be able to come back to work, uh, such as bookstores, clothing stores, sporting goods stores. Um, anyways, stage two of a four-stage framework of how we'll reopen the state and get things back up and running. Um, today, the governor released a, a report card, if you will, uh, which commended us on our ability to gain control of the situation with uh, stabilizing hospitals um, as well as uh, lowering ICU numbers. So good things along the way. How does that affect the wine industry? Well, uh, in Paso Robles, they're getting ready to uh, ramp up and plan on being open as soon as Phase 2 is announced. Uh, tasting rooms, that is. The wineries themselves, I believe, can still function to an extent, as I spoke about in my last podcast. Bottling lines and things along that sort are obviously uh, at a standstill. However, um, tasting rooms will be able to be open in individual counties given the fact that we'll be moving into phase two, if we move into phase two. Obviously, again, we'll find out uh, tomorrow. So we're on the eve of some possible big breakthrough news for the state of California and the uh, wine industry in California. So uh, a few other things. Um, the wine that I had recently, I had two nights ago, I decided to have a French night. So um, I went and I got some beef and I got an inexpensive bottle of red wine, and I decided that I was going to make beef bourguignon, or bouffe bourguignon. So a recipe that was made famous by uh, Julia Child. So the recipes, when you look them up online, are really difficult to find any that are not Julia Child's bouffe bourguignon. Um, and the process that she uses is a pretty traditional process. I found a few other recipes and they kind of use the same, which basically the recipe calls for oil. You saute some bacon and onions in the oil, you take them out, then you add some beef into the oil and the rendered bacon fat and you brown it on all sides. Then flour gets mixed in with some stock that's supposed to be hot stock by the time you've put it in. So the recipe that I used is from a French cookbook, and what it said was sprinkle the flour over the meat after it's browned, add the broth, add the red wine, and then add back the onions and the bacon. So I added everything back, 
and then it calls for bouquet de garni, which is essentially a uh, bundle of different herbs or spices that are tied together with a piece of butcher's twine. Or you see sometimes in uh, Thai cooking, they use, um, for pho, they'll actually use a cheesecloth and they'll add the spices to the inside of that and they'll tie the cheesecloth tight and that way it's easier to remove everything without worrying about any pieces of the spices getting into what you're cooking. Obviously, if you bite into a chunk of allspice, it would be a little unpleasant. Now, this recipe doesn't call for allspice. It calls for rosemary, any herbs that you have on hand. And they all kind of break down pretty easily in this cooking process that takes two hours. And then after the two hours of simmering for this recipe, Julia Childs is baking uh, with a close-fitting crock pot or a, a pot with a lid. After you simmer this for two hours, then you add chopped mushrooms into it and you simmer it for an additional 30 minutes. Now, I find it difficult on an electric stove to kind of control the speed at which things cook because the glass top um, sometimes absorbs heat and it doesn't cool things down as quickly or heat things up as quickly. Something else that makes it difficult is the pot that I chose to cook in, which is cast iron. Now, cast iron is really great. It has some really great heat retention and it doesn't lose its heat if you're adding cold things to it as quickly. But that being said, it does take longer to cool down. So trying to control how quickly the evaporation process was taking place in the Bouffe Bourguignon was a little difficult. I ended up adding extra stock, which unfortunately, in my opinion, added a little extra sodium to the uh, dish. So the dish was delicious, especially with um, some mashed potatoes, uh, some roasted vegetables, and some uh, flat iron seared um, portobello mushrooms or baby portobellos. Um, And I really enjoyed the dish as a whole, but as a single item, I think that it was just a little too salty as, as again, I put a little too much stock. Um, so anyways, what do you pair with Bouffe Bourguignon? Well, it being a French dish, you would pair French wine. You could probably get away with pairing something like a Merlot, but generally what they recommend is either a uh, Red Burgundy or Pinot Noir or a Bordeaux, uh, which oftentimes is a Merlot-dominated red blend. So again, Merlot could work and California Pinot Noir could work, but you're looking for something with a little bit of acid and a little bit of spice to it to kind of balance out the richness of the dish because it's quite rich and quite uh, fatty. And the red wine that I used to cook was actually a Cabernet, which interestingly enough, halfway through the cooking process, when you taste it, it kind of tastes like Cabernet. It didn't really taste like beef and mushrooms and bacon and onions, which are all really beautiful, wonderful things that I love so much. But as it cooked down, I think it became a little bit more expressive and the uh, Cabernet dominant flavor kind of dwindled. So the wine that I chose to pair with this was a 2014 um, Pierre Joulon uh, Fissien uh, Premier Cru, uh, Clos Napoleon. So sounds like a lot if you're not into wine and you don't really understand red burgundy. So I'll kind of just break it down really quickly for any level of person that's out there. 2014 is the vintage. It's when the grape was harvested. Pierre Jolin is domain. Pierre Jolin is the producer. Uh, Fissien is the region that it's produced in. Premier Cru is the quality level of the region that the grapes are grown in. 
Gronin, and the um, name Clonopoleon is actually a monopole, or like a, kind of a smaller area, or kind of a single vineyard that the wine was taken from. So oftentimes, uh, if you get a wine and it's from a particular region, it doesn't have to be from one vineyard designate, but you see a lot in Grand Cru, Burgundy, and, and Premier Cru, Bordeaux, that a lot of these things are harvested from one particular area regularly. So the restrictions that were implemented by the government long ago that was kind of influenced by some monks was the monks decided that these areas made the best wine. So the government wanted to protect those areas and make sure that those areas continued to make really good wine that could be consistently produced in the same area regularly. So pros and cons of that. Pros is they found a really great example of a product. They wanted to maintain that product and throughout create consistency. Now, I don't mean consistency from vintage to vintage. I mean consistency of excellence. So vintage to vintage, it could change depending on weather. Um, many, many things can affect how the wine tastes beyond just the area that it comes from. However, the area that it comes from does have a lot of influence on it. We call that terroir. And terroir is essentially the taste of the land. And that's to say the plants that are planted around it, the soil composition, the amount of water that the grapes see from, let's say, weather or fog or rainfall. All of these things can affect the grape in the long run. So these particular areas that they picked out from year to year had relatively consistent weather. And that relatively consistent weather led to a high-quality product on a consistent basis. So it was important for the country to protect that product and have a crown jewel or a, a pride that they were able to show to everyone else. Now, the unfortunate side effect of that is you can't grow other grapes in these regions. And you can, but you can't produce those wines as a red burgundy. It can't be a red burgundy unless it's Pinot Noir. So if somebody's growing some really awesome Merlot or Gamay or something else in a region that is specifically only allowed to produce that wine, the wine becomes uh, Vin de Tavola. Now, I think I'm using the Italian term, but essentially table wine. And table wine doesn't necessarily mean that the wine's not delicious or the wine's not good. It just means that the wine didn't meet the requirements that the government implemented and said, you're only allowed to harvest this many grapes from this region. You're only allowed to use this grape in the production. So they didn't meet the strict requirements of the government. And hence, their wine cannot be considered uh, Chablis because it's not a 100% Chardonnay coming from the region of Chablis. And again, there's harvest limits, which are all things that I'm eventually hoping to learn. I eventually will learn that say the number of tons of grapes that you're allowed to harvest from each acre, each hectare. So the wine that I had, again, the um, red burgundy, Clos Napoleon, uh, is uh, from the Cote de Nuit. So essentially two major regions in Burgundy, Cote de Nuit and Cote de Bonne. So this is just from one of the two of those. I, I would get more into it, but I'll try to not go on so many tangents. So anyways, I had the wine a couple nights ago. Again, I drank it with Bouffe Bourguignon. And so the Bouffe Bourguignon being a very rich and very savory dish, uh, the wine showed really well. Um, it was interesting, though. It almost had a, 
a little bit of acid to it. Not to say that it doesn't have acid, but maybe the acid was a little more prominent when trying it alongside a rich, savory dish. But the wine in general was pretty lean. It had a little bit of earthiness, a little bit of spiciness. It had some cherry, not dried cherry, kind of just like a little bit of a tartness to it. It's really, really beautiful. So that's about the wine. Now let's touch on the winery, Domaine Pierre Joulon. Joulon. So the winery was founded in 1925, which is really interesting that it's been around for that long. In five years, they'll be at their 100th anniversary, which is a pretty substantial feat to be consistently owned by the same family. So the family was founded by uh, Pierre Joulon, and now it is ran by Pierre Emmanuel. So this is actually the original owner's grandson. So it's still in the family. Oftentimes you see with wineries, whether they be French or California, oftentimes they're sold off. They're not held on to a very long time, um, as much as, say, 100 years. That's quite a while. Not to say that it hasn't been done, because it has been done, but it's not as regular as you might think when you think of wineries and you think of how long they've been around. So anyways, this producer is very famous for their production of wines in the uh, Fisien. So the acreage that they own is, is fairly substantial. They also own acreage in the neighboring region of Gevray-Chambertin. So they have five of eight of the premier crews for Fichin. So again, premier crew is a quality level of the wine. So in Burgundy, which is the region that we're talking about now that specializes in Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays, they have Grand Cru, which is considered to be the best of the best of production of that region. And again, to be Grand Cru, it's not necessarily that somebody tasted your wine and said, wow, it's really delicious, as much as it's getting through the hoops that the government has set out for you to kind of get you to consistently produce a high quality product. Now I'm sure somebody's going to taste it and if it doesn't drink well, it's going to get around. People are going to know about it. The government may get involved because they don't want an inferior product representing their country. So this wine is a premier crew, which is just a step down, nothing wrong with it, but each region only has a set number of grand crews and the region of Fishin has no grand crews. It only has premier crews. So for this production, uh, the Clos Napoleon, uh, being a monopole, is only about five acres. So interestingly enough, my family owns a property that's a five acres. It's in the desert, so it's a little easier to see than a five acres of a wooded territory. And if you think about a wine that you're drinking now from France that came from an area that's that big... It's actually much smaller than you might imagine. I would say that it's less than a city block or maybe equivalent to a city block. It's hard to determine without buildings, obviously, but I would say it's about equivalent to a city block, not a major city, but just kind of a smaller city block. So that being said, all of these grapes were harvested from that one area, and that's pretty unique because you get a real expression from that area. Again, we touch on the term terroir. So the terroir is, again, an accumulation of different effects that the weather and the environment have on the grapes. And if you're trying a wine that's exclusively from one area, 
the weather would have a much greater effect on the wine. Whereas if you had a wine that was blended from multiple regions, they can oftentimes use grapes to blend in that maybe weren't as affected or were from a different area and hence didn't experience the same climate and also don't have the same soil composition. And not to say that that's bad or good, it's just different. In this particular area, they don't do that. This is from one small area. So when you look up the wine, they say that the wine is in two hectares, which is roughly five acres. I think the ratio is for every hectare, it's 2.47 acres or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but it's it's somewhere in that range. Um, so if you hear hectare, just again, it's kind of like talking about yards versus feet. It's just a different measurement. It's still land, and it shouldn't be something that intimidates you if somebody throws the word hectare out there. Just know that it's, again, essentially a a unit of measure of land, and it's not incredibly large, and it's not incredibly small in comparison to something like an acre. So... 2014 was a really interesting vintage in Burgundy, and Burgundy experienced three hailstorms three years in a row, 2012, 2013, and 2014, which impacted the wine industry but didn't affect it on a whole scale. It certainly impacted certain regions and certain wineries, but this winery was fairly unscathed. But goods and bads of everything, as balances, in certain areas, the hailstorm was damaging and it was difficult for the wineries, but they actually saw that the grapes matured a little bit more quickly. And that's because there was less grapes on the vine. Obviously, many were damaged, unfortunately, still on the vine. So they had to go through, but with less grapes on the vine, it it became a little bit more um, focused on the grapes that were left. And when I say focused, one of the things I kind of want to say is, is it's difficult to explain, but I think about it like this. Maybe it makes it easier. Maybe it's just going to make you feel more lost than you feel already. But if each vine has 100 points of flavor and each vine grows 100 grapes, each grape would have one point of flavor. So if each vine only grows 50 grapes or it grows 100 and you clip 50 off, those 50 grapes will receive the nutrients and the concentration from the other 50 that the plant was giving to them. So essentially, each grape would have two points of flavor. And I'm sure that if anybody that's incredibly knowledgeable in listening to this right now is cringing, but that's just the way that I understand it. And if I'm wrong, please let me know. Shoot me an email. Send me a message on Instagram or or however you'd like to contact me because I really love being proven wrong. And and I don't mean it as a challenge. I just mean it allows me an opportunity to grow. It allows me a uh, an opportunity to realistically take a step back and calculate what I said and understand where I went wrong and, and grow and learn from that situation. Anyways, so... Um, the pro of the hail was that the grapes became a little bit more concentrated and, and in doing so almost had a little bit more flavor to them and had a little bit more um, uh, quality, if you will. Um, so anyways, the hailstorm is good and bad. Uh, so 
That being said, I wanted to talk about a few other things involving wine today and maybe take a step back because sometimes I get a little geeky or I get too off topic and I talk about life too much or lessons too much or experiences too much, which are all good. They're all ways for me to just kind of communicate the way that I feel or the way I process things. But today I wanted to kind of take it back to the basics and talk about what alcohol is. And when I say that, I'm not referring to wine. I'm not referring to beer. I'm not referring to liquor. I'm referring to all of them. So alcohol is ethanol. And ethanol is a chemical reaction that comes from yeast and sugar. So essentially, the yeast will devour the sugar. And when it devours the sugar, the byproduct is heat, CO2, and ethanol. That CO2 is something to take into account that becomes quite useful in a lot of regions. They actually use that CO2 to make a lot of um, sparkling wines, or at least begin the phase of the sparkling wine production. Um, But that natural carbonation or or, um, CO2 that comes from the process is really beneficial uh, for the world of wine. Heat, not so much. Heat is something that you kind of have to regulate. Um, I talked a while back about a winery that had uh, about a half an acre of barrels underground. And the reason that they're underground is for insulation of weather, temperature, fluctuations, and light. And so again, heat being something that's important to wine throughout its entire life. If you have a really nice bottle of wine and you leave it in your car in the middle of the summer and you take it out at the end of the day and it's been sitting in that heat all day, it it may be bad, maybe cooked is what we call it, which just means that it was exposed to too much heat. So in fermentation, it's somewhat important because the heat can create more CO2 and it can create more pressure and, and it can cause a little bit more of a dangerous setting. If the CO2 builds up too much inside of a tank, let's say, you have to have a way to bleed that pressure off without having the pressure inside the tank build so much that it may at some point burst or rupture because of the amount of pressure inside of it. So anyways, um, funny story here is, is I actually, first time I experienced this with a bottle of wine, I bought a bottle of um, Bella Gloss Clark and Telephone. So now anybody that's been in the industry for a while probably knows Maomi. And even people who haven't been in the industry for a while probably know Maomi. Well, when Maomi Pinot Noir first came out, they were owned by Bella Gloss, or they were under the Bella Gloss umbrella. All of the wines were owned by the um, family that produces Camus and Amolo and um, Mersolet. They were all kind of, it's, it's all the same family, the Wagner family. So the Bella Gloss category or portfolio was interesting because they had Maomi, which was kind of an introductory entry tier Pinot Noir that was easy for places to sell by the glass. And it was kind of um, a classic example of California wine in the sense that the fruit was a very dominant characteristic of the wine. And again, not that it's bad or good, it has its place and there's certain people that really enjoy that. But then when you climbed into the other tiers of this portfolio or Bella Gloss Winery, you saw things like Clark and Telephone, uh, Dairyman Vineyard, Las Alturas, which were all um, different expressions of the Pinot Noir. So the Maomi, I think, was made a blend of six or seven different vineyard sightings. 
And so the other three that I listed, Las Alturas, Clark and Telephone, and, and um, Dairyman Vineyard, were all a combination of, you know, two or three of each of the wineries to get a different expression out of the same grape. All of them were supposed to be 100% Pinot Noir, but the Wagner family doesn't make a habit of listing their blends or the uh, other varietals that may be blended into their wines. And uh, oftentimes, many people believe that Naomi has uh, this grape called Super Purple in it, or Syrah, or different grapes blended into it. It may be the, may be the case, or it may be that they just get their Pinot Noir super ripe and just have a ton of fruit presence. Uh, I'm certainly no scientist, and I'm certainly not at the level where I could determine a percentage of a grape within a wine. And I think that many people aren't at that level, even once they reach the end of their growth through the end of their education in wine, it's really difficult to sometimes pick out individual percentages of grapes if they're in small amounts. So anyways, I bought a bottle of Clark and Telephone. At the time I was working in a restaurant and it was that owner's favorite wine, or it was the wine he drank regularly and drank quite quickly as well. But uh, let's say he really enjoyed that wine. So there was actually another person that really enjoyed it. And so I went to the liquor store, or not the liquor store at the time, um, the Specs in Galveston. So Specs is a, is a wholesaler. Um, think Total Wine or BevMo or something along those lines. So I certainly don't want to say liquor store as in like I walked into a convenience store and bought this wine. It's hard to find uh, the higher quality of this winery in a, in a convenience store. So I went to this wholesaler, somewhat like, somewhat like um, uh, Total Wine or Bevmo, and I found the bottle of wine and I bought it. And I actually bought it for a coworker and I. So I bought it on my way into work, put it in my car. We're in Texas. It's summer. It's probably 100 degrees that day. Humidity was through the roof. And these wines have a dark red wax top to them, and. When you're opening the wine, it makes it a little bit difficult or problematic because there's almost a pull tab that you're supposed to pull, like if you've ever opened a bottle of Maker's Mark, that you think would make the cap come off. However, it doesn't. So if you ever encounter a wine that has a wax cap on it, the best thing to do, generally speaking, is to take your corkscrew and go through the wax, almost treat it as an extension of the cork. And the wax will either crack and fall apart, like we see in uh, in uh, Abbe de Morgeau by Pierre-Yves Colin Moray, or any of his Chassagne Montrachets, for that matter, all have wax caps, or St. Aubin. I'm not sure if all of his wines do, but I feel like most of his white burgundies do. That wax will actually fall apart and kind of crack and, and come off very easily. But this Belle Gloss uh, wax didn't come off so easily. It was quite difficult. Well, in the heat in my car, it came off really easily, uh, so easily, in fact, that it pushed the cork from inside the neck of the bottle, outside of the bottle, and wax and wine spilled everywhere inside my car. So imagine getting into your car at the end of the day, and your car has been sitting at 100 degrees all day long with melting wax and wine in your floorboard. Needless to say, it wasn't pleasant. Uh, anyways, off topic. So heat is important. If you're storing your wine, it's really important to focus on heat. It's really important to focus on sunlight and it's really important to focus on movement. 
if you're shaking the wine around all the time, it's not good for the wine. If the wine's in constant heat, it's not good for the wine. If the wine's exposed to a lot of light, it's not good for the wine. If you plan on saving a bottle for yourself or for your family member or for your your significant other and yourself, and you want to save it and you want to do the best for it, I would highly recommend putting it in a closet or putting it somewhere where it's not exposed to light. Oftentimes you see people will put a wine rack on top of their refrigerator. Well, if you're not careful, the heat from the refrigerator may be venting up to the top of the refrigerator. Not significant amount of heat. I'm not saying that it will cook the wine and push the cork out. But a extended exposure of that heat is not great. But also inside of the refrigerator is a compressor. When that compressor clicks on, it creates vibration. And that vibration slowly over time is not beneficial for the wine. Now, I'm not saying that if you're going to put your wine up there that you plan on drinking in a few nights, it's it's going to be ruined. It won't. But if you plan on storing a bottle of wine on top of your fridge for five years, then maybe don't do that. Store it somewhere else. Uh, again, closets are really good if you could tuck it up in the back of a closet somewhere where it won't get bumped, it won't get hurt. The reason that closets are good is because we experience it here in this apartment the apartment itself is affected by the heat from outside. Obviously, through the windows is the easiest way, but through the walls as well. And the apartment absorbs the heat from outside. Well, if there's a closet within that apartment, it's another set of walls. So it's another form of insulation. And also, generally, closets don't have light in them. So if your closet has light in it and you want to do your wine a solid, just lay a blanket over the top of it or, you know, invest in a nice wine fridge, something like that. And speaking of wine fridges, light, again, is important. So try not to always keep the light on, even if it looks cool and you're trying to display your bottle. Okay, so back to fermentation. Again, sugar and yeast create ethanol, heat, and CO2. Heat, bad. CO2, good. And ethanol, great. Ethanol is the foundation for all alcohol. So what we see oftentimes is we see wine and we see beer and we see wine and beer licenses. And then we see liquor licenses as something separate, at least in California, also in Texas. And I'm sure other states, if you're out there listening and I'm wrong, again, shoot me an email, let me know. I I always love to um, uh, correct myself and and I'll bring it up on the next podcast and apologize if I'm wrong about something. I, I have no qualms with that. So um, when you have beer and you have wine, you're taking a product and you're creating fermentation. And that fermentation is what creates the wine and creates the beer. Well, liquor is another step beyond that. It's the process of distillation. And so the process of distillation would be taking that wine or that beer and then boiling it again and capturing the evaporated alcohol fumes and letting them condense and turn back into liquid. Now, it seems really complicated. I guess technically it is, but that's just kind of the process. That's the reason that there's different laws, and that's the reason it's easier to make beer and wine than it is to make liquor sometimes. It's not every day that you see somebody start home distilling But especially during this quarantine, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that may be home brewing. Uh, And then wine is just a different process. Wine technically could be made from any fruit. It doesn't have to be grapes. 
but grapes have generally the highest yeast and the highest sugar content for fermentation. And that's the reason that grapes have been used for making wine for a long time. And grapes fall into many categories and many subspecies, but the grape that we're talking about specifically is Vitis vinifera. Um, So Vitis vinifera is a specific species of grape that originated in Europe. Now, you may think like, well, what do table grapes taste like and what do wine grapes taste like? Are they different? They're different slightly. They're still grapes at the end of the day, but a table grape is generally, I mean, I don't know where you live or or if you're just going to the winery to pick out some clusters of grapes and take home, great, good for you. But if you're having a table grape or you're buying a grape at the store, you're having the species Vitis Lambruscus. So if you think of the wine Lambrusco, you generally think, oh, that's kind of sweeter. That's how I've always remembered it. Table grape to me um, is just a little sweeter. So um, Vitis vinifera is, is really important in the process of wine production. There are wines that have been made from uh, Vitis Lambruscus varietals, such as Mustang. Um, there's a few others. For some reason, they're escaping me. But you can make wine from other grapes, and you can make wine from other fruit. Again, it's just the process that you choose to take. If you're going to distill it, then it's no longer wine. It becomes moonshine or vodka or if you choose to add in herbs or things of that sort, you can create eau de vies or you can create many things. Whereas port, and oftentimes we think of digestifs in some cases, are actually fortified wines. Vermouth specifically is a fortified wine. So they start the process of vermouth and port. They start the process and they allow the fermentation to take place. They allow for a natural sugar content to develop and then they add a distilled spirit to it. So it's basically like taking vodka and pouring it in a sweet wine. And then what that does is it essentially nullifies the process of fermentation. So the amount of alcohol actually kills the yeast, which stops the fermentation. And when you stop the fermentation, you're actually able to preserve some of those natural sugars that are in the wine. So Another topic that I wanted to talk about today is tannin. So a lot of times when people say they want a dry wine, they want a tannic wine, I just want to clarify that tannic isn't always dry. Generally, the presence of tannins is present in a dry wine uh, much more than it is in a sweet wine, but they're just a little different. So that being said, tannin is a bitter-tasting organic substance and, and you can find it in a lot of things like tea and, and uh, galls. Now, galls, you might think gallstone. I'm not talking about that. The first time I was ever exposed to this was actually through calligraphy. There's a tree, an oak tree, and the oak tree grows these things called galls. And they almost look like little wooden marbles that fall off of it. And these galls have little holes in them. Well, inside of this gall is a ton of tannin, and they take these grapes, and they uh, they take these galls, and they crush them down, and they use them to make ink. The ink is actually made from the gall, and the reason that the ink is made is because of tannin. So tannin is so far beyond the extent of what we know in the wine world, it's not just the wine world. It's essentially just, again, a, an organic um, byproduct that's that's present in plants. 
So when you're trying it in wine, the thing that you're actually getting is phenolic compounds, and the phenolic compounds present themselves with bitterness, or oftentimes it's described as astringency. So when you're thinking of a dry wine, you're not really thinking of a bitter wine. If you're thinking of a dry wine, you're not normally thinking of an astringent wine. And and just as equally when you're thinking of a bitter wine, the first thing that jumps in your head isn't necessarily dry. So dry is the presence of less sugar. So it means that the residual sugar, you'll, you might hear Psalms or you may hear Wine professionals say RS. RS just means residual sugar. How much residual sugar is left in the wine? Meaning, where did the process of fermentation stop? And how much sugar is left over from that process? So dry specifically has to do with sweet. Sweet and dry are opposites. Dry and tannin are not not the same. But oftentimes when people try a wine and it tastes astringent, generally the wines that taste astringent are dry. Hence, what I assume is the root of the um, misconception of dry and tannin. So when you think tannin, some of the wines that should really jump out to you are Cabernet Sauvignon, which is generally dry, Nebbiolo, which is generally dry. Uh, Nebbiolo, I talked in a recent podcast, it's a grape from northwestern Italy. They use it to make Barolo and Barbaresco, but there's a lot of other great representations of it, uh, just long and Nebbiolo. And, and any time you can get your hands on a bottle of Nebbiolo, I'd recommend that. Um, Sangiovese, another Italian grape, uh, mainly in Tuscany. But again, in another podcast, I, as I said, there's some really great Sangioveses being produced in Temecula, California, Southern California. Um, Malbec, which I'm sure most people have heard of at this point, working in the restaurant industry, no matter what restaurant you work in, no matter where you work, I'm sure you've been asked, do you serve a Malbec by the glass? And if you enjoy drinking Malbec by the glass, I don't want to dissuade you from drinking Malbec by the glass, but if you take a moment to look over the wine list and look over the wine selections by the glass and you don't see a Malbec, there may be a reason for not having a Malbec. And part of that reason may be that it doesn't pair well with the food, or we don't think it's a great representation of the food. But again, Malbec is from Argentina. So if you're a French restaurant, it doesn't make a lot of sense for you to carry Malbec as 100% Malbec, unless you're trying something from Cahors or, or somewhere else in France, because Malbec is one of the noble um, Bordeaux varietals. So um, the... Malbec grape uh, and Syrah is another one that it kind of stands out in. And there is a little bit of a confusion between Syrah and Petite Syrah and Shiraz. So Shiraz from Australia and Syrah are the same grape. Shiraz is actually the Dutch name for the grape. So the grapes were brought to Australia from Europe and they were planted there. And that's how Vitis vinifera from France or from Europe, I'm sorry, made it to Australia. And and so Shiraz and Syrah are essentially the same. So Petite Syrah is actually a different grape in general. So if you say I like Petite Syrahs and you see a Syrah and you want to drink that, maybe take a second and, and think about that there is a difference between those two grapes and that the wines are not significantly different 
is hard to say. It's like comparing apples and oranges. It's, it's, the wines could generally be a little bit darker, a little bit more rich, but they're just a totally different. It's not even in the same ballpark. It's, it's not even the same sport. Uh, Pulp Fiction, for anybody that uh, caught that reference or didn't catch that reference. So, anyways, so Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Sangiovese, and Nebbiolo from uh, Italy or California, if you can find that producer, Syrah and Malbec are all generally wines that have high tannin. So if you're looking for a tannic wine, I recommend one of those five grapes. If you see a Barbaresco on a wine list, it's Nebbiolo. And I have spoken before that if you drink a wine that's high acid, high alcohol, high tannin, you're drinking Nebbiolo. That's that's the expression that it is. Cabernet Sauvignon generally has, uh, California Cabernet Sauvignon generally has a little bit more fruit presence and a little bit more vegetal note or herbaceousness to it than you would find in a Nebbiolo. Okay, so we've clarified that, and, and I'll just kind of take a step in a lateral direction to a totally different topic. There was an article that came out recently that just really kind of drove through the point of subjectivity that we talked about before. And the subjectivity that I'm talking about is an article that pops up on my Facebook, which obviously, you know, the articles are generally directed towards you, given your interests or trying to catch your attention. And it's from GQ. And I don't normally have problems with GQ, and I don't have a problem with GQ at all, honestly, even from this. But the article says best 20 new restaurants of 2020. And the author of the article is a great writer. He, he writes incredibly well, and I applaud his writing. But if you actually read the list of restaurants and you don't read the background information, you may have some misinterpretations. But if you read the information that the author prints, he went to 24 states and he went to 93 restaurants. So that means that in each state, he visited less than four restaurants on average. So that being said, it's really difficult to say that these are the best 20 restaurants in the country of 2020. And I think that if you went somewhere and you looked up a restaurant on Yelp, and you tried to find the best restaurant on Yelp in your area, you may have a good time. I mean, Yelp can be beneficial in a sense of preparing you what's on the menu, hearing people's feedback to an extent. I think that Yelp can be a beneficial thing. But what I recommend is going, go to a local bar, go to a pub, and talk to the people in the industry or talk to locals and find out what they like and find out what they enjoy. Because if you just go and you have on your itinerary that you want to go to the top three or four best Yelp suggestions in the area, you may miss out on a really, really great opportunity to try a fantastic meal um, that you know could become your best restaurant of 2020. So just a departing thought, uh, again, today being dedicated to my dad, I think that it's important for us to slow down in these times of chaos. And obviously we have a lot of time sitting in the house, not doing anything, but just take a moment to, to breathe and, and look at the little things and, and notice the small details in life and the small details in things. I think that oftentimes we 
are too busy to just sit and listen or too busy to just sit and look or sit and watch. We feel the need that we always have to do things. And I think sometimes, even if you're doing things, just take a moment to take in all of the little things around you, all of the small details. My dad was a master at this. My dad was somebody that when we would go in places together or even when we would be in the same room, he would notice things that I wouldn't even have thought to look at. And, you know, he was one that whenever we were in the desert, he would always say, hey, come here. And I'd go, what? And he'd say, come here, come here. I want to show you something. And I'd go, okay. And he would come outside and he'd point at the moon. And he would just say, look at that. And I would go, yeah, okay. What? It's the moon. And he'd say, yeah, but look how bright it is tonight. And I'd say, I don't know. Is it bright tonight? And he'd say, yeah. Well, I look at it every night. And tonight, it's particularly bright. And he would notice these small things, and he would get excited, and he would celebrate life through those small moments and and celebrate life through the appreciation for the small details. Because at the end of the day, if you don't slow down and look at those small details, you might not even notice them. Uh, Life's busy, and... If you don't take time to appreciate it, you may never. Anyways, this is uh, Chris with The Reluctant Psalm, and thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you soon.